there, uh, welcome to the sixth installment of the New Feel, New Look We've Been Had, where we discuss and sometimes debate albums for your listening pleasure. I am Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. And uh, the deal, of course, is that we take turns picking an album, then we both go off and dig into it and come back to talk. This time around, it was your pick. Um, you care to introduce? Yeah, so I picked the uh, Steve Earle album El Corazon, uh, which is Spanish for The Corazon. <laughs> uh, and uh, Yeah, that's right. Dad dad jokes, no kids. <laughs> Remy appreciates it. That's them. right. Um, and, and I had always viewed it as kind of a like a seminal uh, alt country album but i have some different feelings after the after their the re-listen i i agree um and i I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about that before we uh before we get into the album though i also want to do a you know i i think we there's an elephant in the room that we need to acknowledge um an elephant holding some laurel wreaths in its trunk that it wants to rest on our heads that's right um we are the, <laughs> we are officially, according to some podcast tracking site, we are the 47th most popular music commentary podcast in Canada. That's right. Like you just, you can't buy accolades like that. That's right. That's it. And, you know, I just, I really want to know, like, how bad is that 48th music commentary <laughs> podcast? Like, is it <laughs> there? Can you hear the footsteps? It's just like, it's just like. Just... It's like minutia of shoegaze, like that. <laughs> uh, you know, like, I, if we can't hold our position in Canada, part of me will be sad. Like, yeah, I mean, and, I mean, it's proximity, too. I mean, we're, we're, that's right. we're close, so. Well, our, our accents are probably comforting in that's Canada. That's right, yeah. They're, you know? They, these guys, hear us these guys like, get oh, it. I can trust these guys. They know what's up. That's right. We know the we know who the real Dave Thomas is. I mean, we're <laughs> damn straight. Yeah. Oh, I just yes, number forty-seven with a bullet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um. Yeah, I'm impressed that they took the time to email you to let you know that. that... Well. And like I, I've been thinking about it over and over. Like it, there has to be an angle, but I cannot for the life of me figure out what the angle is. It's like there's no solicitation to get me to buy anything or sign anything up. I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't think you're gonna go out there and like evangelize for this podcast tracking. <laughs> you know, I guess. They've gotten me to talk about it, but I've never said it by name because I can't remember the name. Yeah, I, I, I guess you're, I guess you're putting it out into existence, but yeah. you know, like, I don't know. I, I, I find that <laughs> I, was, I had a good laugh over that. <laughs> I've been pretty stoked about it ever since. That, I, the fact that it's in Canada really just just makes it like. I am a Canadian at heart, I think. You know, maybe they maybe they found out that you had that Coors Canada sticker on the back of your car for like 10 years. God, I wish I still had that. that. Which, I mean, this obviously probably doesn't transfer on a podcast very well, but it was a Coors bumper sticker that had, for some reason, the Canadian flag next to it. it was, <laughs> I, 
I always felt like that was like in my heart when I was driving around with that on the back window on my Saturn. That was like a direct response to uh, people with Confederate flag stickers on their car. Fuck you, Canada is where it's at. That's right, and it, it it's you know like an American brewer in Canada. I guess it's Molson Coors. Maybe that was why they were doing it. That would make sense. But if I remember right, we we got those in like a crappy like liquor store in Wisconsin, right? Yeah, like Superior. Superior. Or yeah. Damn straight. Uh, I don't know. Guys, Canada. Oh. <laughs> So to get into El Corazon. Yeah. Um, so I got all the, you know, the Tombstone album or Tombstone info on the album here. Uh, released in 1997 on Warner Brothers. Produced by Steve Earle and Ray Kennedy, who also played at least some of the drums on the album. Calling themselves the Twang Trust when they uh, produce. This is... Earl's seventh album and kind of the culmination of a reinvention of himself after some ups and downs that we'll get into. And, uh, yeah. So like when you said it wasn't what you thought it, what you remembered it as being like, how would you describe it? Well, it's, it's sort of a, like, it's sort of a mix of a bunch of different styles of music. And I think some of that is just the number of people that he's brought in to perform with him on. But, um, I mean, I think, for my money, this is the second good Steve Earle album. <laughs> um, yeah. After I Feel Alright. Um, so, is Steve, I feel like Steve Earle, like a lot of people like the Copperhead Road era Steve Earle. Yeah. But, I mean, to me that just, it sounds, it's a little like, I don't know, like that Hank Williams Jr. kind of. Yeah, that just 90s Nashville mainstream. Yeah, like. Butt country. Um, yeah. So, like, if you're a listener and you don't know the Steve Earle journey, he, like, started out, um, you know, as, like, this just mainstream Nashville star um, in, you know, very middle-of-the-road country. And that flamed out for a couple of reasons. And this is, like, him coming back out of, you know, after the flame-out. Yeah, and it's kind of, I mean, I think it's... It's around the same time, like within a few years of when uh, the Johnny Cash American uh, recordings started coming out that kind of, like the ones where he started working with Rick Rubin, where he kind of like really changed up the production style. And so it really kind of introduced him to a, like a whole new generation almost of of, uh, listeners. Yeah. And there's a little bit of that here too. I feel like it's. uh, I think there is. I, I think like, you know, we didn't couldn't see it at the time but like i think those cash records and this kind of like cleared a bunch of forest that then you know jason isbell came in and built a house in you know like like even it's like adjacent to uncle tupelo but not exactly the same this just like stuff that is country music but is not nashville and is like in touch with the modern world. I don't Yeah, and it's got, I mean, it has some country elements, um, but it's the one of the things that I like about Steve Earle, especially on this record, 
um, is that they really lean into kind of his bourbon-soaked voice, like his yeah. just sort of, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, the Steve Earle I like is, like, when he's he's kind of, like, twangy slurring his words, sort of. like and he really slurs. Like, uh, and I, just, I feel like that, like, kind of gravelly texture really yeah. just, like, I mean, it just adds something. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like Johnny Cash's voice. Like, it's just really distinctive. It's, uh, yeah. and I feel like it, I don't, I, I was trying to think of where I, where I first heard of this album, but I don't, I can't remember. Uh, it was just kind of present. Yeah. It was just, I, you know, talking about his voice, like, I mean, you're right that like this album is, it just, it almost feels like a mix CD hitting so many different, you know, there's like. There's a folk, there's folk music, there's bluegrass, there's kind of Nashville country, and there's, there's like parts that are indie rock, but like his voice, like, like it described like that, it should be a mess, but his voice is the rug that ties the room together. And like, it all just, it sounds cohesive in a way that is pretty fucking tough to do with, with this. That, that and references to Tennessee. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that, that's kind of a thing. Like, I have this note that, like, his voice ties it all together in two ways. And part of it is, like, his singing voice. But there's also, like, his observational writing voice that, like, everything is written from his distinct Tennessee point of view. And so, he, he, you know, like, I, that also gives it this sameness that, like, it just sounds like a guy talking about his experiences in different ways. And that really works. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one thing we should touch on is, uh, did you hear the dedication on the album? No. Um, so it's dedicated to uh, Towns Van Zandt. Okay. Um, and I thought this was kind of cool. It says, <laughs> two towns, see you when I get there, maestro. That's pretty cool. Yeah. He would have, I think, so when this was recorded, Justin Towns Earl would have already been born and named yeah i think yeah, i think, think he might play on the album justin i think Tom's he Earl. does yeah um but i mean i think i've heard a couple different uh people say that the fort worth blues is like an homage to towns vans towns vans and which i think is and i'd be curious to get your thoughts on this because like i mean towns vans and it's kind of a kind of a train wreck of a person <laughs> like yeah i you know and i mean yes <laughs> and uh he's on the list of people where like people that i respect love him and it just never lands for me but like you know obviously steve earl gets like not just a lot of joy but like a lot of fucking inspiration out of the guy's work and like i don't understand it but Okay, but you know, Steve Earle is also, like, I don't want to, I'm not judging the man at all, and it sounds like he's figured things out, but he has had elements of his life where you would look at it and go, yeah, a little train wrecky here and there too, and True. maybe that's part of the draw. Um, I just want to read you this quote that I, that I came across, and I just want to get your unvarnished reaction to it. Okay. Um... And it's uh, it's sort of a, I think it may have been after, right after Towns Van Zandt died, he said, uh, so two things. It's got a little bit of a, like a little story about how 
uh, one time he was performing with Townsman Sand, who got too drunk to perform, and so Steve Earle just got up there and played a bunch of Townsman Sand's covers <laughs> as <Yeah>. Townsman Sand. <laughs> but the quote that I wanted to get you uh, get your thoughts are is this this is his thoughts on Van Zand. The best songwriter in the whole world, and I'll stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table in my cowboy boots and say that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, A-plus for just use of language and, and sentiment. And uh, maybe, you know, I, I'm maybe I agree. I It's weird just, I'm in a weird headspace with Dylan right now anyway, because there was the news today about him selling his music catalog for like 300 million and I have just all day been reading like people a lot younger than me just like fucking heaving shit at Bob Dylan all day for for doing that and uh, uh yeah I don't know like I, I feel like a little weirdly protective of Bob Dylan right now even though I'm not yeah, I mean, like a super fan totally his to sell right it's just the yeah. question is does Bob Dylan need 300 million dollars like you know like mm-hmm. I don't know I just think I, I'd be curious to to get his I mean maybe maybe uh, Jacob Dylan's wallflowers checks have stopped coming in and well the best like speculative explanation I've seen is that like he has six kids and it's easier, you know, a big pool of cash is an easier estate to divide up than, you know, 60 years of songwriting credits. I, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't I mean, know. It, but, it seems like they should be able to figure it out, but yeah. Um, yeah. It was weird. It was, uh, I don't know. I always go back to the, like the Beatles, uh, and Michael Jackson ended up buying, um, did he buy just Lennon's songs or all the Beatles catalog? I can't remember. I thought it was all the Beatles, but I don't, that, I don't know for sure. That, that might be like playground lore. Just like what a weird headspace that in, that is for like Paul McCartney to hear like Beatles songs in television commercials because he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't control any of that. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> That, yeah, that just that would really be. I think that would be kind of painful, honestly. But yeah, especially if you don't like the product. Yeah. Oh fuck! I'm backing Nike. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. But uh, so like rewinding, where do you stand? Um, I guess I'm not ready to. I admire Earl's willingness to fight for uh, Van you know, Towns Van Zant's songwriting supremacy. I'm not sure I agree. Do you agree? No, it's not even close. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, like I, it would be like it would be one thing if you were talking about a, I mean, Townsman's has got a, a lot of really great songs, but I mean, so does Neil Young, right? Yeah. And you know, like I'm not going to bat for Neil Young over Bob Dylan either. Like it's. Uh, that one's probably closer for me, honestly. But, um, I mean, you just look at the, like, I don't know. You know, I'm not a big credentials person, but how many other singers have a Pulitzer Prize? Right. I, you know, I mean, the other thing, too, is, like, 
I always thought, you know, I'm not like a huge Dylan super fan, but I appreciate him. And to me, the thing that always seemed to elevate him is that he's, you know, on top of like, he's got stuff to say and he structures things well and, you know, everything's well observed. He's also really fucking funny, just in a way that like, yeah, most other people operating at that level aren't. And like, like that just, to me, that's like the elevation is like. This is a supremely just witty, observational person singing all this stuff. Yeah, I I just think it's. I, I mean, I don't I don't know. I guess if you're maybe, you know, everybody has their favorites. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, I think he might just be kind of sticking up for a friend too. But um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a good know, line. Like it's a hell of a line. Yeah. You know, and again, like it. It, following the Towns Van Zant bandwagon seems to have taken him to pretty good places. So, like you know, yeah. like can't argue with the results. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to shit talk Towns Van Zant, but I just, I mean, to me, it's not, it's not really that close of a, you know, like things, two things can be good, but one thing can be way better, right? Like yeah. it's, it's just this. I don't know. I, I feel yeah. like that's a that's not a great comparison, but that's just uh, that's just me. I agree. But were you surprised at all when you re-listened to it? Uh, like just starting with Christmas in Washington, like how many elements of that just kind of like caught you for today's climate? Right. I, I yeah. I mean that that song like is. I was I, I thought about that. Like I think like that song is the perfect description of like political victory that gets you nothing. <laughs> and like that's you know, that is so so where we are that like Yeah. Uh, Just the and, getting into gear for four more years and things not getting worse is like I, I feel like that's where a lot of us are at. You know? Like that that's literally the best we can hope for right now. And like he nails it right there yeah i also like with that song like you know i liked it i I mean you know i liked it when i got the album in 97 but like i'm just shocked at how um when i was younger i didn't appreciate how much it must have cost him in nashville to be so just left sympathetic that, you know, like his first song, he comes out praising unions and Emma Goldman and Joe Hill and Malcolm X all in the, you know, in the first song. And like, that's. Yeah. Do you think that's the Wobblies Joe Hill or Stephen King's kid? I'm assuming Wobblies. (laughs) I, I, I always wondered if Stephen King's kid took that pseudonym as like, like, is, was he homaging the Wobblies or. I, yeah, because I think you know, I don't know. I don't know his politics personally, but I know Stephen King is also fairly far left. So, him having a son who would be like, "Well, my pseudonym will just, <laughs> you know, be a labor leader." Like, I've always assumed that was a possibility. Yeah, I mean, but, it's just not in the footnotes. I don't. I, although I don't yeah, know how old Joe Hill is, he might not even been born when this was recorded. I don't know. Um. But, I mean, so, like, that's the thing, like, like, you know, that song capturing a mood that's relevant now is a big deal, and also just, like, that song taking a stand, and, like, throughout the album taking a stand, like, 
I didn't appreciate when I was younger just how rare and cool it is for any musician to like position themselves so consciously and so intelligently. Um, like, but Steve Earle's pretty fucking cool about that. And like, I guess like part of the fallout with Nashville, you know, the, the climactic event was just heroin. Um, but I was reading that like, even before he had, even before addiction got out of control, he felt like he had to work around being vocally pro-choice, you know, because like it was a big deal to him and he really wanted to talk about abortion access and like that was not going over in Nashville at all. And like, that's, I don't know. That's cool. Like, yeah. I mean, I think you could probably get away with referencing Martin Luther King. Um, you know, I think when you're, t- you're taking it up a notch with Malcolm X and yeah, I mean, provided anyone in the Nashville establishment knows who Emma Goldman is taking it up <laughs> another notch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just think the thing that I admire about Steve Earle is I guess his just his consistency and kind of his, you know, he's been, he has been sort of rocking this left to center of, you know, for since at least 1997, like he, he just, he's been really, he's been very consistent about it. I think that's, and I mean, I think, I think this is a, this is a really good song. Like it really showcases his voice in a like minimalist way. Yeah. It, uh, this does, you know, talking about slurring this, this does have like my favorite silly, uh, vocal slur thing of his where he, the line about Republicans drink whiskey neat he slurs that so much that I I thought that was I thought the CD was skipping for <laughs> 10 years um, yeah, it took me forever to figure out that no he's actually trying to say two words there uh, yeah I just like the way he says so like there's the chorus there you know there's foxes in the hen house but you know when Steve Earle says it it's like those foxes in the in house, which actually sounded like Tom Waits when I said it like that. That was not what I was trying to do. <laughs> I think, in some ways, Earl Waits and Dylan all kind of live in like the failure range of human vocal cords. Yeah, so. right. Like it's like, I mean, those those things have seen some shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and then like a couple lines after that, he's talking about unions have invested their proud red banners. You know, like. The yeah, man's flying the socialist flag decades ahead of. You know, and, and so there's this thing where, like, you know how like Morrissey has slowly kind of revealed himself to just be like an absolute Nazi sympathetic shithead, you know, and John Lydon is like always walking around in a Trump shirt, and you know, so like there's this terrible thing of seeing people who you used to think were pretty cool. When um, did you ever think John Lydon was cool? No, but I I thought he was a dick in better ways than he's really like, That guy has been an idiot his entire life. Yeah, but he used to be a, you know, he used to be an idiot. He used to point his idiocy in good directions. True, true. Uh, but, you know, I, just like discovering with, with, with Steve Earle, and I get this too with Brian Hanneman, um, just like kind of looking at these guys 
who were around in the 90s and seeing that like they were on you know they were visibly vocally on the right side of things in the 90s before it was even clear that the that where the lines were like that's that's the pleasant reverse of people yeah i mean this themselves. is the end of bill clinton right like yeah. this is yeah. you know like this is uh you know kind of I, I you know i don't know we we just gotten done with with 4 years of uh, the first Bush and then four of Clinton. And then this is the like pre Lewinsky Clinton. Yeah. I just, it's so fucking apt that like, like I don't love Bill Clinton and four more years of things not getting worse is like, I mean, that's such a perfect distillation of like the absolute best case scenario with Bill Clinton. And like, and he has it just dead on and fuck. Like well done. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, that's what it, it's so. I mean, it's just one of the things that you you go back and you're like, okay, this song's not going to age well. Uh, but yeah, it's it actually pretty pretty apt description of our current climate. Yeah. I mean, it's no Taney Town. So what do you think of Taney Town? Well, I mean, it's a horrific story. Um, and I also feel like it's kind of a waste of Emmy Lou Harris. Like, if you're gonna bring in Emmy Lou Harris, like, is this really the song? I mean, she. I, on the bright side, I think she is the reason that the songs were. You know, like she makes it worthwhile. She she elevates the material. It's it, it's not. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, you'd, you'd want to see something better with her, but like. Like he does yeah. the he does the duet with uh, Siobhan Kennedy later yeah. in the later in the album. I mean, like, let's cue up Emmylou Harris for that. Yeah. Like, yeah, and that sounds like it should be an Emmylou Harris song. Maybe you know, maybe Harris is just like so tired of doing the romantic duet. Like you know, the total yeah, speculation that could be. That's maybe she's like, I want to tell a fucking story. We don't need to moon at each other. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. I mean, I'm sure she's, she definitely has enough status to kind of dictate what, what she's interested in doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think it's a, I mean, it's a, it's an awful story, but it's a, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's kind of a, it, it probably also takes a little bit of guts in the South to, you know, like, it's one thing if you're Neil Young and you write Southern Man, right? Like, yeah. It's another thing if you're if you're uh, you know Steve Earle and you're gonna yeah. live in Nashville. Yeah, it's it's a big difference. I um, I you know, the one thing like like Tandy Town, it's tough because like I think it's really like it's well intentioned. It's always a little you know, a white writer trying to write from a black point of view, like. It's well intentioned. I don't think he really captures like anything that's really there. In the song, it kind it, it it it's not great, but like he gets away with it in song form. But have you ever seen the short story version of this? No, he, is um, it written by Steve Earle? It is. He put oh, out a book no. of short stories, um, and has like the full narrative version. And I mean, why is that necessary? Like. <laughs> Like what I more think is there just to a add? Point where everyone in your orbit is telling you, like, you know, Steve, you got it all figured out. I just, 
I, I mean, it's like sometimes I just don't want any more detail. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, like I think I get it. I think I get what you're trying to say. I don't need a. I don't need more. You know, like, like it's all there. You know, like I yeah. think I think we all know what's going on, but. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to try not to read that because I think that. Would, I think that's a wise move. I think that would be a step I went backwards. From, I went from being like excited to horrified when I saw that book, and was like, oh, 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 oh. But and I mean, I don't know. I think I've told this story before, but you're talking to someone who, when they were in junior high, read the novelization of the movie Total Recall, which is based on a <laughs> short story by Philip Dick. So, so yeah, that's, that was a Piers Anthony gem. That was Piers Anthony. <laughs> you bet. Excellent. Novelization of Total Recall. Only the finest in hack writers. Uh, um, how about I still carry you around? Like, fucking great, fun little bluegrass song. And then he went off and made a, a bluegrass album with Del McCory. Like, yeah. Like, that's the point where you start seeing like oh fuck he's just he's he's off the leash he's gonna like indulge every whim on this thing well that's what i mean that's what kind of makes it makes it fun is that it's uh you know it's like a sampler right like you get yeah. you get the uh kind of a i wouldn't even call them country songs i mean if they're really just acoustic ballads <laughs> excuse me jeez you. thank you um and then you have just sort of this like blue grassy romper it's kind of fun yeah, it's great you know and then like then i making sure my sequencing is right here but it just it bounces from from yeah from i still carry around to telephone road which is like you know this other great country inflected thing that's not it's not bluegrass it's not like nashville country I I just I, I love like he's just hitting like things from different angles. Yeah, I mean Telephone Road has one of my all time, and it's not even the line; it's just how he delivers it, where he's like working all week for a Texaco check. I love that totally. <laughs> like, it's weird, you know, because I was just shitting on him as a, as an actual short story writer, but like this song like works as a you know it. it tells in musical form tells a perfect little short story like you know who the you know you know who the speaker is you get a sense of what his life is and what he's up against and it's just fucking fun and interesting and it's it's like a it's like a happy springsteen song yeah i mean i i kind of it's sort of like a like a tom waits song sort of um so tom waits has a song that's called looking for the heart of saturday night that's kind of similar um or it's sort of this like you know like young person going out of the town on the weekend and and I, I well what i like about earl's song is that he does very with very good economy of words he does a good job of like you know just sort of establishing this guy's background and kind of what you know like what he finds appealing about it and what he doesn't so yeah i, I just yeah. I, I think it's a i really think it's a great song I, I think it's fantastic. I, I fucking love the the sax that comes in and just like burn, like I, it's, there's this weird jauntiness to it. It's I, uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's just it's just a good one. Like it's uh, 
I don't know. I, I really, uh, I've, I've always kind of liked that song. I've always kind of wondered if there, there must be an actual telephone road in Houston. Seems like it. Like, it, I guess that's the thing. Like, he does, he makes it seem so real that I'd be fucking bummed to find out that it didn't exist. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you wouldn't go and you wouldn't listen to, like, Ziggy Stardust and be like, you know, <laughs> well, this is totally real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this just, happened, man. This happened. <laughs> there's no embellishment here. But yeah, no, this it sells this sells it. I and so this is the collabo with the Fairfield Four and like I I have no sense of them outside of the song. Like I kinda don't want to because I like this song so much that Yeah, it's just it's I I would be interested to get the like behind the music and how this came together if it was a like first of all I love that uh that he collaborates with a band called the Super Suckers later. And the song fucking rules. And they have a their bass player is named Eddie Spaghetti, which <laughs> God, I hope that's his real name. I I can't tell you how much I hope that's his given name. <laughs> it's like, all right, son, your last name's gonna be Spaghetti. You're gonna take a lot of shit, so we're gonna make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> your name is your name is Edward. You're going to be listening to a boy named Sue a lot, right. just in the hopes that you'll get the message. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so I mean, let, let's hop to that one. So that song yeah. is NYC, and like, I mean, fuck, it's, this one almost sounds like an indie rock song to me. Like, it, you could, this absolutely sounds just like an indie, you know, an indie rock band with a singer... With a southern accent. And like, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. That's almost exactly what I wrote. I, li- I, I, I wrote not like cowpunk, but like real punk with a southern singer. Yeah. And it totally fucking works. And again, it's got like, you know, same thing. Great, great little self-contained story. Like characters that pop alive. Call out to Tennessee. Yeah, it's, a, it's like you've never, at least when I first listened to this, like I'd never been in New York City. Like, but listening to it, like I got the idea of like what you know what he's talking about what's yeah and it's just it it's always amazing to me when musicians can do that like they can take the whatever two two and a half or three minutes of your attention span and give you this like fully formed story yeah yeah it's it's a fucking miracle when it works this song like with riding the line between like you know, it's theoretically on a country album, but it sounds like punk with... It makes me think of Hank Williams the Third too. Um, you know, because that's, that's always supposed to be... You know, the, the big sell for him was, he's the punk rock Hank Williams. And I, I feel like I like this better than I like any of his work. Boy, you're really going out on a limb there. <laughs> Uh, you know, I made a conscious <laughs> effort way to, to... Way to take a stand. <laughs> Steve I, Earle uh, is better than Hank Williams III. <laughs> I have known people who were like, ride or die Hank Williams III. And like, had built this elaborate like, Star Trek system that, you know, the odd-numbered Hanks Williams are the good ones. And the even-numbered one is the bad one. I feel like there's a sample size problem there. Uh, Probably. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've never met anyone that uh, that is that into Hank Williams the Third. 
other than oh, Jessica I... White, the dancing outlaw. <laughs> I, 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 for real, like, it was in the late 90s, like, around the time this album was out, there was, there was a fucking constituency. Um... It can't be that big of a constituency because I see I, I see advertisements for Hank Williams the Third playing at like the Seventh Street entry. So <laughs> that's that's because he keeps it so real. That's that's the beauty of it. He doesn't want your fucking highfalutin main room. He's bringing it back to the masses. Yeah, I guess I guess that's the question. Would you would you rather have? You know, 3,000 adoring fans are like seven really dedicated ones. <laughs> yeah. I guess, like, I've built every artistic pursuit <laughs> in my life around having seven <laughs> adoring fans. So, so, you know, like, I think the, the question is answered. Yeah, just... I, I mean, maybe uh, maybe you travel in different circles than I do, but uh, I, I have not seen this outpouring of love and support for <laughs> Hank Williams the Third. Oh, man, yeah. number three. <laughs> so, if you saw him, would you be like, like, are you the guy that wrote "Country Boy Will Survive"? <laughs> are you Monday Night Football? Which guy are you? <laughs> I think you'd. I think he'd probably get punched. You'd. Uh... But, you know, it'll be worth it. it I, I think any situation where you are punched by any of the Hank Williamses, you know, like, you, you're going to come out of it with a good story, at least. This is true, yeah. It's, it, it's kind of like the bit from um, Dazed and Confused, but, you know, like... <laughs> Hemingway was always getting into fights. He didn't win them. He just got into it. <laughs> nobody, nobody talks about him. Jackson Pollock. They just said he fought. <laughs> Say whether he won or not. I fought one of the Hank Williamses. That's all you need to say. Um. Oh. Um. Well, you know. So okay. Another elephant in the room here. That <sighs> Hank. Pretend there's like a hypothetical situation. Hank Williams the third is playing in the Seventh Street entry. Steve Earle and the Dukes. I, I think now it's officially and the Dukes and Duchesses um, are playing the main room. Which one are you actually going to go well, to? That's, this is a this is a good question because I think you've baited me into this because <laughs> you know that. Uh, one of the only shows I've ever wanted to end at First Avenue was the was the Steve Earle show. Am I right that Brian Henneman opened for him? I think so. Which is a hell of a lineup. And like um, it was really good. It was just way too long. Like it was so like like I'm gonna show you the dark side of this like <laughs> Springsteenian we play till the sun comes up. <laughs> Like, our friend Jen literally fell asleep on her feet at that show. It's just, yeah, it's just altogether too long. I, I don't... So much. I don't often say that, but, like, I... I there's, you know, there there are a couple times where I've left First Avenue shaking my head. When, we, when I went to see Pavement and they played a fucking movie in the middle. Um, yeah. That was lame. That was no good. Uh... 
And I still don't understand why that was necessary, but I... To show proper contempt for their audience, I think. <laughs> well, mission accomplished, Malcolmus. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that's, I think like the Steve Earle thing is kind of, you know, it's like coming from the exact opposite place of like, I know you love music, so I'm going to give you as much music as I can give you. But it kind of, you know, it's like this education in what diminishing returns <laughs> mean. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was a lot. Um, but I don't know. I I would probably go see, still go see Steve Earle, um, just because I, I like his music a lot better. Yeah, agree. I You know, one other thing about his live show that I was thinking about, though, like, so I think part of why this album rules so much is, like, because he's got different, you know, like genre appropriate groups coming in to back up all the different genre experiments. Um, but then that kind of bites him in the ass when he tours because like no band is just natively good at bluegrass and indie rock and Nashville country, you know? And like, I, I do feel like even though it like the show was too long, but it was high quality, but it was kind of like, you know, sometimes it was like 90% of where the album was at. Just because, like, you know, the same guys cannot be good at all of this shit. And he's not like a super charismatic, like, guy, right? Like, he's yeah. not Jeff Tweedy up there. He's, you know, he's, you know, he's more Jay Massis than uh, Jeff Tweedy. Thank God he's not he's not the full Jamascus, but he's there's a lot in them. It just is not, and I mean I I think like, you know I'm a big proponent of live music. I think live music is fantastic. Uh, yeah. So I I mean I I just think we maybe also maybe didn't catch him on a on a great night, and I don't I think that's true. I don't think either of us were super familiar with his catalog outside of this album either, which might have been part right. of the. I think I knew, you know, this album and literally and Copperhead Road. Maybe Devil's Right Hand. Which, you know, there's a song like I didn't appreciate that song at all until I heard the Johnny Cash version of it. And then I was like, oh, fuck. That's, oh, Steve Earle Road? I'm like. It's, I think we can all agree it's better as a uh, Johnny Cash song. Yeah. Or as a Johnny Cash Rick Rubin collab. Yeah. <laughs> um. I, I just think it's uh, there's a song actually a song on here that kind of reminded me of that song a little bit. Um, I I actually thought that like that song "Here I Am" that's a little later in the album kind of yeah. reminds me of that because it's kind of it's like a it sounds like a something that could be on the Johnny Cash American record just like rocked way the f up. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the other one that sounds kind of like an indie rock song, but. But it absolutely, like, you could hear then Cash taking it and, here I am. Yeah, I wonder, so, this is a bit of an aside, but I wonder if you're, like, so, as part of those recordings, a lot of the things that I think people identified with initially were some of the covers that he did. With Cash? Yeah, and I wonder how many, like, how many covers he was contemplating like what was 
Oh, fuck. Well, I mean, like, after he died, they just kept, like, wheeling out, you know, like, volumes and volumes of, you know, American blah, blah. And, like, uh, two, like, sadly diminishing returns. But, like, a ton of those were covers. Like, like yes. mostly. Just I, they must have recorded hundreds of fucking covers. Yeah, I mean, I just, it, it's just interesting. I wonder how he, like, how they even approached him about oh. you know, like you know, doing all those songs I don't know it's wild too like for me so like the whole Cash Rubin thing that, that was kind of how I came to know who Rick Rubin was you know like the, those came out as I was like building my knowledge of the musical universe and so like for a long time I was like oh well Rick Rubin is the guy who brought Johnny Cash back and he's great for that um and, like, it's been this weird, you know, over the years, it's weird to, like, learn, like, the earlier stages of his career. And, like, you know, he's there in the Beastie Boys. Yeah, his Def Jam. Um, yeah, and he, like, I mean, like, he, like, he, you know, was kind of, like, this guiding spirit for them, but also then kind of becomes a bad guy in that story. And, like... It's just think of how weird a fucking career it is to be like the, you know, Coast Bengali of the Beastie Boys, and then like, decade and a half later, you're like reviving Johnny Cash's career. Yeah, and then Jay Z after that. It's just fucking nuts. Like it's a, I mean, I I suppose Jay Z was probably still very popular, so he didn't really revive his career, but like. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing to me about Rick Rubin is I think, you know, a lot of us rediscovered Johnny Cash through those records. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't, I don't think anyone would tell you those are the best Johnny Cash records, but, you know, it was sort of a gateway to, um, and they're solid. I mean, I thought some yeah. of them are really good, but. Uh, the one where Petty and the Heartbreakers are backing him, I think, like, is in the conversation for his best. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I. I I mean, I don't know that you're ever going to do better than Folsom and San Quentin. Yeah, I, that, that, that is that is an insanely high bar. I mean, I guess it's a live show, so you know you have to kind of like how do you how do you rank that? Um, you know, like I, I feel like live albums are kind of their own category. But even then, those are weird for live albums, or, or maybe they're not. Maybe like th- there's this thing. I, I, I rank them kind of differently from like, you know, any other live album, but that maybe that doesn't make sense because they really are so blatantly live and they have like crowd work and yeah, I I mean, that's to me, that's part of it. It, you know, it, it, it just, it's, it's hard because a lot of live albums aren't recorded that well. So, I mean, the ones, the ones that are really that, you know, like, Sometimes you're filming a movie and you get like the last waltz or, uh, you know, stop making sense or something like that. Like, and you just, you capture this like perfect, you know, kind of set of events. Yeah. And then sometimes you just get a Midland in excess show. And... Yeah. Or, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of some of the other, other not so hot live albums. Do you remember oh, that uh, ACDC live uh, yes. Yeah. So like, that's kind of my middle point of like 
perfectly acceptable live album. Not great, not awful, but like that's the that's dead so. I, I I hope like the the bottom boundary. I hope that like the reference the zero point is the song remains the same. <laughs> the Zeppelin one. Well, I mean, the shit thing about that is now with Spotify, we know there is a really good Zeppelin yes. live album. Like, How the West is One is a really good... Really it, fucking bangs. Also, awesome title for a British band. Yeah. Awesome. Like, love it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, like, how how did they just lay that fucking... In? Well, I, I guess I read a book that, like, explains the story of how they laid that fucking egg, but... It's still, like, even if it made sense in context, how did no one in the band say, like, guys, like, this is, this is subpar? Yeah, I mean, do we, do we count Sticks Kilroy as a, is that count as a live album or is that like performance art or? You know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I don't even know what it's. So is it, is it hypothetically like, the Mr. Roboto suite. It is. Live. It's the it's the rock opera about robots. <sighs> According to the behind the music, it's like what blew up the band because they like <laughs> the other members were so annoyed with Dennis DeYoung's like <laughs> like just insanity. <laughs> I can see that. I I would be I would be similarly. <laughs> but I mean, like. For you're in sticks. I mean, get over yourself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Come sail away, man. Come sail away. Yeah. I, did you? I, is sticks? Have you seen sticks live? No. Okay. Um. Th- oh, it's your on one of your uncles holds my, sticks up as the like pinnacle yeah. of American music. There was this thing where, like, yeah, when our friend. Joel and I went and went to Ames to see U2. You know, we came out, and that was like the first big stadium show we'd been to, and we came out and just like, oh, that was great. Oh, And my uncle was the one who picked us up, and just like from the entire fucking way from Ames to Omaha was just telling us how much better it would have been if we could have seen Sticks. Yeah, it's like a three-hour drive, too. That, so was, a, that was a long time for a Sticks down. <laughs> I at some point in there, he also, like, did park that narrative to tell us that there was some nasty hotel in Des Moines that had rubber sheets and charged you by the hour, and that we should try and stay away from that place. Sage advice. Yeah, you know, <laughs> Des Moines after dark. So do you feel like, like, you feel like you could get away with more of that, like, bullshit folklore pre-internet? Like... Absolutely. Well, so I feel like absolutely... But then, like, the internet's so awash in bullshit that there's, you know, there's probably some Facebook group that's all like, oh, no, there's that hotel in Des Moines with the rubber sheets, and that's where they harvest adrenochrome from the children. True. I suppose. There's always a there's always a wormhole. Yeah. But I, you know, like, as, some, as someone who, who has on occasion, like, you know, embellished a story or two because I think it's a better story, like... You know, fact checking the internet does has limited my ability to do that. Like, yeah, it it makes you, you know, you got to step carefully when you're telling the tall tales. Yeah, so now I just make them so outrageous, like you know, like 
that bathroom over there is where, uh, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald knifed one of his uh, <laughs> editors. That's, that's a historic bathroom. Oh, well, looping her back to the album here. There's another thing I wanted to run by you. Like, we kind of bounced off this again, but... So, like, I look at this now, and I think this is just this fucking classic landmark album. And I think when it came out, it was just, like, a record that I liked, you know. Um, I liked it a lot, but, I did, you know, I, I wasn't like, this is a classic. And like, I guess, first I'm curious, do you, where do you rank it? Or, you know, how do you consider it? And, like, what makes a classic album a classic album? I, mean, I think longevity is what makes it for me is what makes it a, a classic album. Like if you're still, if you listen to it now and it, it still gives you a lot of joy. I think it's a classic album. Um, yeah. you know, when this album came out, I feel like I was still trying to separate a lot of things in my life. Like, uh, yeah. musically, like I was, you know, I was kind of a, I was sort of in my hardcore alt country phase. So like, there were a lot of hats that were tried on, if you want a yeah. metaphor. Yeah. Um, and I think this is just one that stuck. But I, I don't remember thinking, like, you know, this is an amazing record that's that I'm going to be listening to when I'm 46 or 45, however old I am. Like, I feel like that, you know, like, that that is a... It was a nice surprise listening to it. Like, I yeah, I would have classified it in 1997 as an alt-country album, and it really isn't yeah. that. I agree. Yeah, it's not doing what Uncle Tupelo is doing. It's, you know, it was definitely like, if you were in that subculture, you know, like, you could not help but be aware of this album. But it's doing something else. Yeah. It's, no, it's got a lot of depth to it. I, I really enjoyed going through it again. I've, uh, I think I've enjoyed most of them. Um, yeah. You know, I feel like it's been a really fun process. I mean, there was save for the dark side of a couple Uncle Tupelo albums. The yeah, even then, like, it, I don't know. It was always interesting. Yeah. With with this, like, a thing I hadn't thought of, you know, like, for me, like, if I think about the, the, like, the, like, definition of classic album for me is probably London Calling. And one of the things that makes it great is it turns into, like, this sampler of the different types of music that the band likes. And that's exactly what this is too. You know, yeah. it's just it's um, just one guy doing it instead of two or three writing songs. I feel like London Calling, at least for me, London Calling is sort of on a another like, you know, it's not even it's it's sort of above a classic album. I don't know how to yeah. how to even, you know, it's like it's like one of those that you make the case for if you're stranded on the desert island that. Somehow has power and a, you know. <laughs> One solar-powered <laughs> CD player. It <laughs> can never be reopened. That's right. Uh, that, you know, that's one you would, that's one you might, uh, that's, it's just, a, it's sort of a rarefied error. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, it's better than this, but like, uh, the similarity and, in like, thinking about what elevates them is just, I don't know, it's interesting to me that like. Yeah, I mean, I what's your, other than uh, London Calling, what is your criteria for, like, a classic album? Well, that's the thing. Like, I would have said, 
I would have said that a lot of times you kind of know when you hear. There are a couple albums that I've heard that, you know, you're just like, oh, fuck. I have never, I guess there's like this novelty thing where you're just like, you're surprised. And you're like, I have never heard anything like this. And it's, you know, um, I mean, like, It Takes a Nation of Millions is like the first time I heard that record, I was just like, this is not an experience I've ever had before. And this is fucking amazing. Um, you know, and I think that was, you know, when, when the first time I heard Trace, like it, there was this same like shock, like, but so I think that would have been my explanation for a long time, but now I'm not, I, I'm not sure that that's the only path. Cause you know, like this is a case where like I, I liked it 20 years ago and now I think more of it. So, you know, I, I think like, I, I think the longevity argument, like that's definitely a valid path to greatness is like, if you just keep going back to it and keep appreciating it and maybe finding more then then you've probably got a classic album on your hands. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, uh, it's just a tough, it's a tough thing to, plus when you're, at least for me, when I started listening to this album, I was like 22. So it's like, yeah. you're, there's just not a lot of life experience to draw on at age yeah. 22, right? Like, you're just sort of, I don't know. But, I mean, for some people, maybe there is. For me, there was not. It was, yeah, it was. Well, I think there's this thing where, like, a lot of good country music is about loss. And, like, when you're 22, you, you know, like, unless you've had a very unfortunate life, like, you just, you don't have as much loss, you know. So, like, a lot of the heartbreaky stuff sounds like posturing you know and like after you've lived a while you're like oh yeah i can fucking relate to that that's even like um christmas in washington you yeah. know like fuck are the 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 times we have lived through have really put us into a position to like feel that song in our bones in a way that i didn't in 1997 yeah no i think it's uh and i mean just knowing what you know kind of like what steve earl's arc becomes like he just sort of you know this this is probably uh probably the beginning i mean i guess you could say the previous album is you know, i feel all right is a pretty good album um it's not i don't think it's as good as this one yeah um but then you've got you know kind of the next two are both also really solid so um it's kind of the the sweet spot yeah I think it's a weird thing where, like, he kept doing good work after this, and, like, the next couple albums are really good, but I don't think it ever came together as perfectly as it does here. I would agree with that. Um, There is, on I Feel Alright, there is a really good duet with uh, Lucinda Williams. Not Lucinda Williams. Uh, Yeah, Lucinda Williams. The, the, I I always get to Victoria Williams and Lucinda Williams confused it took me uh at least a decade to get that straight the one who wasn't married to the guy in the jayhawks <laughs> yeah he, yeah they have a very uh, they have a really good duet on the on i feel all right uh which is like uh, is a weird thing to to hold against this album because it's it's just way better but it's uh yeah. i do think yeah. it's this is i would say this is probably my favorite steve Rowe album i i, I totally agree Definitely. This is, yeah, I mean, Transcendental Blues, I will listen to every now and then, but, like, 
this is even when I wasn't like actively listening to this album a lot straight through like you know just a couple songs from this will wind up on a playlist for me every year no matter what yeah you know it's a it's a good one it's uh I I guess it's weird because I wouldn't have thought I held it in that high regard before we started this but uh yeah. listening to it I I really have I really have enjoyed it again. Awesome. Sam, you got anything else on it? I don't. I don't. Do you want to preview our our next pick? Yeah. So I'm going to throw us into some weirdness here. Um, I don't actually know how I feel about this album. Excellent. I feel like I kind of want to reappraise it for myself. Um, So maybe we'll end up hating it. Maybe we'll love it. Maybe maybe we'll split and we'll fight over it. Um, Blondie Parallel Lines. Yeah, good. Like, this would be, be fun. Ready to reappraise, take seriously, etc. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm stoked. Yeah, I, no, it's a good one. It'll be fun. Um, in the meantime, then, thank you for listening. Um, if you are... In Canada, especially, <laughs> please spread the word. <laughs> Get people who love music commentary podcasts uh, on board so that we can, you know, crack the top forty. Yeah, cut the um, power to whoever's forty six. Yeah, and I guess if we can't go up, I just then like, please don't spread the word so that we can go down. Um, I presume to number sixty nine. Um, <laughs> in the meantime. Uh, I am Keith Pilly. You can find me on Twitter at Keith Pilly. And I'm Chad Cook. You can find me on Twitter when I check it at uh, at Cook6252. And uh, as always, like I just love hearing from people who have listened to the show, have anything to say, uh, positive or negative. Um, you know, double if it comes with a Canadian accent attached. Um, and yeah, that's it. Thanks I mean, again I, for listening. I would add, since Keith's not going to plug it, uh, Keith's, uh, if you go to his Twitter, he's uh, selling some art for the holidays. Uh, so true. check that out if you're uh, if you're interested in styling up your house. If you want some geometric birds, I can hook you up. Um, yeah. Thanks, yeah. And uh, in the meantime, we will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. <laughs>